Hiya, Duncan Green here with the regular roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power. Well, not that regular. Um, it's all getting a bit crazy at the moment. Um, end of term at the LSE. Students are prowling my office hours and trying to have sit-down sessions with me about their assignments. Every time I put a bit of extra time up on the office hours calendar, it's like so a pack of hyenas descend, or more kindly, it's like some sort of Glastonbury piling. And so I've got not much time at the moment, but I've managed to put a few things on the blog. But um, hopefully after Christmas, uh, it will get all a lot easier, apart from marking. That's when teaching turns into marking. Oh, joy. Anyway, uh, also hard work is links I liked, and that's because Twitter, I'm not calling it anything else, has become so rubbish. It really has. It's just my, you know, it's full of adverts and virtue signaling and to sift out some useful links is getting harder and harder. But I did manage a few, um, some funny, some very serious, a lot on Gaza, obviously. I'm going to go with the funny just because it's a lovely sunny day and I don't want to, you know, um, dwell on the horrors. Um, so there was a really funny poster circulated from the 1978 Scarfuck Youth Indoctrination Festival. What a name. And uh, by somebody called Adam Sharp, who you have to follow on Twitter. He's great. Very funny guy. Um, uh, often uh, posts um, translations of different languages for particular phrases, which just make you laugh all the time. Always raise a smile. And anyway, he, the, all the bands have just crazy names. Adam Sharp's favorite three are Arrogant Sandwiches, Pavlov and the Dribblers, and Hitler likes Twix. I have to go for Pavlov and the Dribblers, I, I have to say. But um, all the band names are just superb. Um, don't make them like that anymore. Uh, next, back to Gaza. And, the, and the, the problem for me, I guess, you know, in terms of running a blog is I've never been to Gaza. I've never been to Israel. What do I post? Do I just sort of join in the general shouting? Um, so what I decided to do was uh, I found some of the voice notes that Oxfam staff and partners are receive, uh, are sending to us uh, from inside the Gaza Strip. Um, we published them uh, and with transcripts and I thought, you know, the least I could do is just put some of those up. Uh, and, and so here's what they say. So first the Oxfam partner, Eman Shannon, she founded an organization called Aid and Hope in 2009 to support women with cancer in Gaza. You know, life goes on, people get sick. You know, normal stuff happens. Uh, and Oxfam's been funding Aid and Hope through its Women's Rights Fund. So a year ago, Emman said, uh, my name is Emman Shannon. I'm founder and general manager of Aid and Hope for Cancer Patient Care. I'm a cancer survivor. When you have cancer, you feel that you've lost everything. Now imagine yourself in a place like Gaza and you can't get out to get your medication. This is the main aim of Aid and Hope to find solutions for all women who have cancer in Gaza. Then four days after the horrendous Hamas attack and the beginnings of the uh, Israeli, uh, Israeli attack on Gaza, Emmons vo voice note said, as a woman cancer survivor, I feel that our normal life used to be an emergency life in other countries. We are under attack for the third year. We don't have electricity, we don't have water, and after five minutes, the internet will disconnect. So we will not have any access to the world. I feel that it's nonsense, it's not fair, it's not humanitarian to be under this attack. Four days later, it gets worse. I lost my family house, my house. All my family were evacuated in different places. We lost our houses. I'm talking about hundreds of memories. I'm remembering my mother when she was making my favorite pie. 
when she planted the jasmine and she told me, Emmon, one day you will remember me with this jasmine. The smell of the house, they destroyed everything. They destroyed the memories, the love, the hope, the feelings. And it goes like, it's, it's very powerful stuff. And, and, and I think those voice notes are, I mean, you do hear some testimony from inside Gaza, but that, that sense of everyday loss is really powerful addition to all the talk of casualties and the you know, horrendous things going on in Gaza. So do listen to those notes, uh, read, the, read the transcripts if you have time. Next post, what are 70 master's students from around the world want to campaign on? So I've just spent a busy few days giving feedback on students' proposals for their assignments in my activism class at the LSE, which I teach along with Tom Kirk. For this, they have to pick a topic that they feel strongly about and design an influencing strategy to achieve a positive change. They have to work through the course content on understanding systems and power, mapping stakeholders and finding plausible points of entry for their campaigns before coming up with a convincing set of tactics to achieve their goals. Some of the tools they use are included here. So I've got some graphics from the student assignments, which are really amazing. I have to say, I have no idea how they do these graphics for their PowerPoints and their assignments, but they look fantastic. But the exercise also provides an interesting snapshot into what progressively progressive, relatively privileged, the LSE is not cheap, highly educated 20-somethings from around the world care about these days. These people are likely to go on, many of them, to become activists, to work in NGOs and in the aid sector or in social benefit organisations. So here are the headlines from that snapshot. Gender issues this year are the big one. It's probably no coincidence that 85% of the class are women. 14 projects tackled topics such as gender-based violence, street harassment, girls' empowerment in schools, defending feminists' right to protest, the pink tax, and if you don't know what it is, look it up, FGM, period poverty, pregnant outcomes, pregnancy outcomes, abortion, even combating sexism among one student's family members. Um, so that's like a big chunk is around gender rights and gender justice. The next highest, interestingly, is around refugees and migrants, things like reforming the kafala system in the, in the UAE, where migrant workers are treated like dirt, have their passports taken away, have no rights at all, and so on. Um, then you've got a batch on three proposals each. So education, two on access to education for marginalized groups, such as Spain's Roma people, or girls from poor families in Kyrgyzstan. I've got a lot of Central Asian uh, students this year, which is really interesting. Um, various aspects of child rights, including foster care provision in the US, the treatment of former child soldiers in the Central African Republic, and child rape survivors in South Sudan, housing and homelessness, reforms at the LSE, ending its fossil fuel investment, uh, introducing a school pregnancy po policy, and a personal favorite of mine, changing my course. So somebody who's on my course wants to do their campaign on changing my course in order to include a week on the use of violence to achieve change. Could be interesting. Uh, um, I, I will uh, read with interest the final, the final proposal. And then environment, meat consumption, pollution, and low emission urban development, uh, two each on reducing drug abuse and a combating right-wing populism in one in Germany, one in Sweden. Um, and a long tail of one-offs, you know, everything from curbing plastic use to fast fashion to false advertising by budget airlines to mental health. So interested, you know, I asked people on their thoughts on the, in this list, and a lot of people said, wow, you know, why is there nothing on climate change? Uh, 
I was struck that there was nothing on trans rights, which is such a big topic in the UK right now. Um, if you want to see both what the students are suggesting and how it went down with readers, come and have a look on the blog and, and add your comments to, as well. All right. Next post. A UK white paper on international development. This got me going very retro. Um, you know, wow. These things used to be really big when I first came into the development sector in the late 90s. DFID had just been formed. Um, big UK white papers. So here's the post. So when I joined Oxfam in the mid-noughties, it was a time of big documents. The World Development Report, the Human Development Report. At regular intervals, the latest annual tome would thud onto my desk and require study, debate, lots of panels and press commentary. The tomes combined in-depth research and narrative, lots of narrative, about the nature and direction of international development. We would comb through for the good or bad bits, i.e. the parts that fitted our worldview or the opposite. Oxfam and other NGOs even joined in to a lesser degree with their own lesser tomes. I'm guilty of producing a couple of my own. That era has passed now, at least for me. Life has accelerated. Attention spans have shortened. Awareness of the limitations of top-down development has grown. I haven't read any of these big documents for years. I think many of them are still coming out, but I wonder how many people actually read them. So the arrival of the first UK government white paper on international development since 2009, launched on Monday, had a distinctly retro feel. I skimmed its 149 pages, but then decided, that short attention span again, that the best thing would be to put together a series of quotes and links to the more interesting commentaries and critiques to emerge, rather than those that just cherry pick or suck up to the government. Uh, this is what they call TLDR, too long, didn't read. And this is my guide for the TLDR community. So a good post by ODI's Mark Miller, who also tweeted, the whole exercise feels a bit anachronistic to me. We will do this. We will do that. I'm not sure this sits that well outside the UK anymore. So interesting. Um, the timing of this white paper is obviously a bit odd. It's the first published during the 13 years of this Conservative government and a year before an election that polls predict will be won by the UK's main opposition, Labour Party. And it's only 18 months since the publication of the International Development Strategy, which articulated a new UK approach to international development. I suspect this also might be the UK's last white paper on international development. And Mark explains why in his post, if you want to find out the reasons for that. The document's primary purpose appears to be to draw a line under some of the more tub-thumping rhetoric on development of the recent past. Aid and development are once again to be celebrated, not denigrated as a giant cash machine in the sky, quote from Boris Johnson there, or deployed as a means to push back against malign actors. The case is made that a focus on ending extreme poverty alongside climate and biodiversity is in the UK's national interest. The document seems intended to demonstrate that the UK can once again be considered a reliable partner on the international stage. It's clearly much more internationalist in tone uh, in its reaffirmation of the Sustainable Development Goals and the UK's continued support for working through the multilateral system. Some of the most eye-catching commitments relate to calls for more ambitious reforms of multilateral development banks, including commitments to general capital increases. The discussion around the governance of multilateral institutions hints at potential support for reconsideration of issues such as quotas and shareholdings. That stuff's really important, technical, but very important in terms of changing the power and governance within places like the, the World Bank, the IMF and the regional development banks. For Bond, 
which is the UK uh, development NGO network. Gideon Rabinovitz, who's an ex-FAMA, welcomed the commitments on, on the SDGs, refocusing aid on low-income countries, boosting climate finance, and a more respectful and equitable development partnerships, that's a quote, and reinvigorating the FCDO's approach to partnering with civil society. But then came the caveats, as always, um, from NGO people. There's a nagging question of how they will be resourced when the UK aid budget remains at 0.5% of national income, with a third of this currently being used to support refugees in the UK. Universal access to basic services, for example, requires significant upfront investments now, and the government's not planning to return to 0.7% until close to the 2030, the apparent end date for this white paper as well as the SDGs. It also lamented the lack of commitments on tax, debt or trade. The lack of ambitious policy in these areas suggests that key departments outside of FCDO did not take this white paper seriously. This is a major concern, given that the SDGs cannot be achieved without a whole of government response. And Oxfam's head of advocacy, Katie Chakraborty, felt much the same way. We should have seen more ambition on debt, where private creditors are not being forced to change, and on taxation, where developing countries are spearheading a new UN-led global approach and some breakthroughs this week on that. I'll talk about that next week, probably. In a subsequent email, she added to, to me, she added, in many ways, this reads like the government moving with the wider debate on development. We see partnership, if not quite decolonization. We see localization and funding women's rights organizations, if not full gender justice. And we see what we would once have called policy coherence for development, though not enough. We see COVID, climate, conflict as the backdrop. But in any other document from any other institution, we would have expected to see inequality in there. It's a glaring omission. Centre for Global Development, Charles Kenny, had a, has a great Twitter thread, and he, he summed it up as saying, pretty good on ODA and its uses, not bad on multilateral development banks and the UN system, okay on trade, not terrible on investment, an absolute train wreck on migration which CGD feels very strongly about, and so on and so on. I, I quite like Charlie Goldsmith's summary. Um, UK aid is back pointing in the right direction, extreme poverty, SDGs, a floor of better attitudes, humility, localization, respect for expertise and facts are back in. I can't believe we still have to say things like that, but yay, facts matter again. New commitments will be for a new government. The FCDO is a sadder and wiser engine. And for those who don't get the reference, there's a lovely uh, graphic he posted of Gordon uh, from Thomas the Tank Engine looking very sad. And finally, I, 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 got, I really smiled when Temris Khan, the uh, anti-white saviorism campaigner, came on and said, why the hell do they still call it a white paper? Isn't anything getting through? I think, I mean, it's, it's very good. I mean, there's a reason, but um, it doesn't, it's not a good look. And maybe we have to stop calling them that, especially on international development. Then I went super geeky on the last post for this, this chunk. Um, what can we learn from looking at the overlaps between innovations in ways of doing research and neglected development issues? Uh, not the greatest title reading it now, but anyway, I've struggled to summarize what, that, what on earth I was talking about. But here's what I was talking about. The same subjects have been coming up again and again in random conversations recently, especially the ones where someone schleps down to South London for a general chat with me in a local coffee shop, one of my favorite ways of avoiding real work. In a recent discussion with Oxfam Mexico's Stephanie Heckenberger, 
a small penny dropped. The value of looking at the overlaps between my hobby horses rather than always taking them separately. And those hobby horses, FB2P regulars will know, include at least four, which I talked about here. Positive deviance, which is identifying, exploring, and helping scale up positive outliers that already exist on any given issue, rather than assuming that it's all about external interventions and projects and outsiders. Domestic resource mobilization. By ignoring domestic forms of altruistic giving and solidarity, we perpetuate aid dependence and centre aid organisations when actually there's significant amounts of potential funds in country. Diaries. Repeat conversations with people on topics such as how they manage their money, gain access to water or resolve disputes can be super helpful in revealing underlying structures of power and exclusion and stop us doing stupid or unnecessary stuff. Faith. Poor people trust and rely on their faith groups far more than on NGOs or the state. But the aid sector, including activist NGOs, is often determinedly secular and fails to take faith institutions, faith leaders and congregations seriously. So these are apples and pears. Positive deviance and diaries are innovative methodologies, while domestic resource mobilisation, DRM, and faith institutions are neglected topics, at least in my world. But chatting to a Stephanie over a very nice pre-Christmas mince pie, we started to discuss the potential of the overlaps. And I did a four blob of Venn diagram and got all terribly excited about all the different overlaps. It's too much to talk you through, but a couple of, of examples. Let me just see how I'm doing for time. Yeah, I've got some time. Okay. So you've got the diaries and you've got the domestic resource mobilization. So why not do a diaries of the rich project? Diaries up to now have always been done on the poor or on other, on other sectors. But let's find out how well-off people in the global south spend their money, fund good works. And you're not going to get that from their tax return. So why don't we actually go interview them every month for a couple of, for a year or two, and just see what they do with their money when they're not just spending it on fast cars. Or what about faith institutions and leaders? You know, why don't you, they tend to get Marmite reactions. Activists either hate them or love them, often based on their own personal experiences, sometimes deeply personal. But why not use diaries to follow faith leaders over a period of time or faith institutions over a period of time and find where what they do, you know, the sermons they give, the the, decision, the, the the things they urge their congregations to do, the things they do as congregations, where do those things align with progressive values on gender, on poverty reduction, on rights? Let's actually work out how faith institutions work. And then if you take a positive deviance approach, you could explore which congregations or even members of congregations are positive outliers on issues such as early marriage, I've been reading some really interesting stuff in that general world of Islamic feminism about Islamic feminists working within the Islamic you know, faith to deal with topics like early marriage and FGM and you know, uh, finding positive outliers on those and working out from that is a really interesting approach. What about a positive deviance approach to, to domestic resource mobilisation? Identify which people or institutions in a given country give money for progressive causes and try and understand why and whether that can be scaled up. So there's, I think this could be something for workshops. You know, you, you, you choose a couple of new methodologies that you want to try out in terms of research. You stick a couple of neglected topics, 
And then you look at the overlaps and say, how can we do this? You know, is there, is there something that would be interesting to do here? I think it could be a really good brainstorming kind of activity. Um, there are lots more blobs and overlaps, uh, which I won't go into, but there is one nice juicy bullseye involving all four blobs. Something along the lines of com combining diaries and positive deviance to explore how, faithly, how faith organizations, leaders, congregations give money for altruistic purposes. You, you hit all four blobs and you've got something that would be really interesting to investigate. So this is a very short summary of some posts. I'll be back uh, in the next week or two, depending on how much time I get to post. Um, hope you have a great weekend. Bye, everybody.